This morning's first reading is from Revelation 19, verses 6 to 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, "Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns." Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, "Write this: Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb." And he said to me, "These are the true words of God." Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, "You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy." Today's second reading is from Revelation twenty-one, verse one to five a. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes." And death shall be no more; neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, "Behold, I am making all things new." The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John and Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, "Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so." Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord. We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, "I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me." You would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and have seen him. And from Matthew, 
Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. As I began, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us. And we'd ask now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach, and that you being known and glorified would be our first and our only concern. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? In the late 80s, Stephen Covey, a U.S. educator and author, wrote a book entitled The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It sold some 40 million copies, and so I would suspect that some of you here will have read it. Now, Habit 2 invited the reader to begin with the end in mind, to imagine what you would want your loved ones to say about you at your funeral or write of you in an obituary, and then to proactively orient your life toward that desired future. Begin with the end in mind. We've taken this year to prayerfully discern how we're called to press into the kingdom concerns of Jesus, to press into matters of poverty, inequality, and justice. And our fall sermon series has been given over for this purpose. And we wrap up our series today hearing Jesus inviting his disciples to press into kingdom concerns, to live in light of his reign over every aspect of life, beginning with the end in mind. You see, each of the Gospels have extended teaching discourses the night before Jesus' crucifixion, teaching where Jesus is preparing his followers for his departure encouraging, equipping, forming them to carry on the work of the kingdom, to live into his reign over every aspect of life. And much of the teaching is focused on the end. As if to say, as you press into the work of the kingdom, as you live into my reign over every aspect of life, begin with the end in mind. We read a small section of that teaching in our reading from the Gospel of John. As Jesus says, in light of his impending departure, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? But if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself 
that where I am, you may be also. Begin with the end in mind. Okay, some of you might be thinking, I know what this is about. I know what end Jesus is inviting them, inviting us to orient our lives toward. This is about heaven, an afterlife, heavenly mansions, streets of gold, and indeed that is often how this text is read. It's a text that's often read at funerals to affirm just that. Don't worry, your loved one is in a better place. Is that what Jesus is on about here? Is that the end we're meant to have in mind as we press into kingdom concerns? Certainly that has been taught in some Christian circles more than in others. Infusing in the modern Christian imagination a belief that after death you've got two options. Heavenly mansions or lake of fire. Which future is yours turns on your acceptance of Jesus as Savior and Lord. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says here. No one gets to that future except through me. And so the primary work of the church, it is taught, is evangelism. Inviting as many people as possible to enter into that future. What then of our earthly life? Well, better make sure you don't do anything to disqualify yourself from that future. And so much energy is turned over to personal morality and ethics. Stay away from these things, press into those things, and you'll be okay. Is that what Jesus had in mind here when he spoke to his followers of the many rooms in his father's house? Heavenly mansions and streets of gold, is that the end that is meant to animate our life as church? I don't believe so. You see, Jesus is using imagery that his disciples would be very familiar with. Imagery from, of all places, first century Jewish wedding practices. See, in the first century, Jewish weddings were the fruit of arranged marriages, as each set of parents would try and find the best match for their son or daughter. That match could not be finalized until the fathers got together to work out a bride price or a dowry, which would be a parcel of land or a number of cattle or a measure of oil or wine. But the engagement could not be sealed until the potential groom came to his potential bride with a cup of wine and said, this is my life given for you. And if the potential bride received that cup of wine, took a sip, she was communicating that she in turn was giving her life to him. Now unlike modern weddings where very soon after the engagement, a date is set, invitations are sent out, and a furious marathon of activity ensues to get everything ready for the celebration, in the first century no one had any idea as to when the wedding would take place. And there was often a very long delay. Why? Well, the groom would have to go back to his father's house, saying to his future bride, I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. And returning home, he'd begin to build an addition, a room onto the family home where they would live after the wedding. And only when it was completed and permission from his father given, could he return and the wedding festivities begin. 
The bride then would have to be in a constant state of readiness. For she would not know the date, the time, the hour of his return. The only warning that she would get would be the friend of the groom sent ahead to blow a trumpet moments before the groom was to arrive. Now this imagery is all throughout the New Testament. Jesus will say here to his followers, I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to return and take you to myself. In the Last Supper, where this conversation takes place, Jesus offers his disciples his life in a cup of wine. This is my life given for you. In Matthew 24, Jesus will say, No one knows the time, the date, the hour of my return. Only my Father Of course he knows the date, the time, the hour of his return. He's God. But these are words to locate our understanding of the end in this imagery. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul will say of followers of Jesus, you have been bought with a price. The bride price has been paid. The very life of the Son has been given for you. First Thessalonians 4, Paul will say Jesus' return will be announced with the blowing of a trumpet. And in our Revelation 19 reading, his return will inaugurate an eternal wedding festival. All of this is imagery utilized to tell us something about our future. The end that is meant to animate our life as a church. Now, what does this rich imagery then tell us about that future? Well, first, the marriage imagery tells us that that future is relational. It's about love. Our future is about entering more and more fully in the love that God has for us in Jesus. It's about being caught up in the eternal loving relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. What we now know dimly and completely, we will know fully, completely. And I can't imagine anything more glorious than being enveloped in the glorious love that God has for us in Jesus. The imagery also tells us that this future is one of joy beyond measure. See, a wedding feast was the most joyous occasion in a typical Jewish town. Everyone was invited. It lasted a week. A week of feasting, of rich, succulent foods, of incredibly finely aged wine. Jesus is saying that our earthly joys are but a pale foretaste of the joy that he has in store for us. And the imagery tells us that Jesus has gone ahead to prepare such a future for us. And what will that future look like? Well, our reading from Revelation 21, I think, fills in some of those details. And I saw a new new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. This is the future home that Jesus is preparing for us. A future of no more pain, No more suffering, no more sorrow, no more disease. A future where all wrongs are righted, all pains washed away, all evil undone. Our world shot through with his goodness, justice, love, and peace. 
And this is not a heavenly, ethereal, spiritual future, heavenly mansions and streets of gold. This is an earthly, material, physical future. A future where there's full flourishing in every aspect of life. And when the trumpet sounds, he will return to bring this future into reality. Begin with that end in mind, says Jesus. As you as my followers as a church press into kingdom concerns, as you live out my reign over every aspect of life, proactively orient yourselves toward that end. But how? How? Well, when the follower of Jesus looks out at the evil, sin, brokenness, injustice of our world, we rightly grieve. Lament. This is not as it should be. This is not as God intended. And that lament, that grief, that sorrow is good, is right. But in light of this future, we must also say, this is not the way it will be. Adding to our grief a yearning. A yearning for that future to come into the present. And when we yearn for something, and we know this, it orients our faculties, our resources toward it. It turns our time, our energy, our talents toward those ends, leading us to live in anticipation of such a future. And the imagery, I think, supports this. The first century bride had to be in a constant state of readiness, literally dressed for the occasion. And Revelation 19 picks up on this imagery, inviting us to be ready for his return, adorned in fine linen, pure and bright, which the text explains is the righteous deeds of the saints. And if you're more right-leaning in your Christian sensibilities, you may be thinking, well, this is about a life of obedience, about living in step with the commands of God. A life of integrity with my words, my body, my life, my money. And I think the scriptures would say to you, yes, yes, adorn yourselves with such things. If you're more left-leaning in your Christian sensibilities, you may be thinking this is an invitation to press into matters of justice, to ensure that the conditions are present in our world where all are able to flourish. And I think the scriptures would say to you as well, yes, yes, adorn yourselves with such things. Righteousness is both a life of obedience and a commitment to kingdom justice. For the future we're oriented toward is one where we will personally be made new and our entire world will be made new. And so let us not separate into left and right what the scriptures hold together. Clothe yourselves with such things. Now not only does this future place justice and righteousness in its proper place, it also places evangelism in its proper place. See, in light of that spiritual, ethereal, heavenly future of heavenly mansions and streets of gold, evangelism often sounds like a sales pitch for a divine insurance policy. 
Come to Jesus, secure your spot in the afterlife. But in light of this imagery, evangelism becomes invitation. As Revelation 19 puts it, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. An invitation, yes, to a future, but also an invitation to a way of life that is proactively oriented toward that future. For by Jesus' death and resurrection, that future has come into the present. By the power of the Spirit, that future begins to take shape in us, transforming, changing us. By the work of the Spirit, we're invited into the context of a community, a church, where together we live in anticipation of that future in all we do and say and pray. Missiologist Harvey Kahn, I think, has a great analogy for this. He calls the church a model home. We're to be God's demonstration community of his rule. He says, on a tract of earth's land purchased with the blood of Christ, Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun building new housing. And as a sample of what will be, He's erected a model home of what will eventually fill the entire urban landscape. He now invites the world into that model home to take a look at what will be. And the church is meant to be the occupant of that model home, inviting neighbors through its open door to Christ. And evangelism is when the signs are up saying, open house, come in, look around. In this model home, We live out our new lifestyle as citizens of a heavenly city that will one day cover the entire earth. And that is why this movement as a community toward kingdom justice is so vital to our life as church. Because we are meant to demonstrate the fullness of what the future will look like. And as we actively await for that future to come in its fullness, it is a waiting that is infused with hope. For like that first century bride, we do not know the date, the time, the hour of his return, but we are assured that he will return. For it is a promise that is rooted in the loving faithfulness of God. And what our world desperately needs is a people infused with such hope. There's not a whole lot of hope these days around the future of our world, is there? War, disease, famine, economic uncertainty, climate change, deepening divisions, hatred and anger broiling. All of this and more contributing to an erosion of hope and a fracturing of our humanity and our communities. We need hope. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, a Jewish psychotherapist, reflected on hope in light of his time in Auschwitz during World War II. And in the midst of the hopelessness of camp life, some, he said, became brutal and cruel. Thinking only of their own survival, they colluded with the Nazi guards and betrayed fellow prisoners for scraps of food. Others, he said, gave up hope entirely, just didn't get up one day, stopped eating. 
Still others, he said, grabbed a hold of a temporal hope. If only I can survive the war. I'll get back to the wealth, the position, the family that I once had, and the camps were liberated. None of those things were returned. And Frankel observed that their lives were marked with ongoing despair. But he said that there was another small yet significant group who in the midst of the brutality and hopelessness of camp life remained kind, possessed inner freedom, inner strength. And it all had to do, Frankel observed, with the possession of a hope that was not rooted in temporal realities, but in eternal ones. The faithful one, Jesus, proclaims, Behold, I am making all things new. I am preparing for you a glorious future. And at the end, at the trumpet blast, will come again to bring it to completion. And such a hope gives us, such a promise rather, gives us a hope that is not rooted in temporal realities, but in eternal ones. Not rooted in human progression or ingenuity, but a hope that is rooted in the loving faithfulness of God. And so let's live as a people of hope. Let us begin with that end in mind. Let us fix our eyes upon the new Jerusalem, proactively reorienting ourselves to the utter renewal of all things as we press into kingdom concerns and live out his reign in every aspect of life by the power of the Spirit and to the glory of Jesus alone. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.